We'll open your Bibles to Mark chapter 9. As you probably heard, and if you listened to Tim read this morning, it's a... It's a it's another lesson on the demands of discipleship, but I, I warn you ahead of time, it's not an easy passage. It's not an easy passage to read. It's not an easy passage to hear. It's not an easy passage to preach. I can I can promise you you that. And all of this this is continuing the private teaching that Jesus has been giving to the disciples on the way to to the cross, and he's taught them about the the necessity of faith, faith exercised in prayer. After they come off of the mountain, when they couldn't cast out the, 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 the mute demon, he's talking about faith is, is necessary in, in your, your, uh, your, your doing the work of Christ, being his disciple. Humility is also necessary. And now he's going to present some very serious requirements in, in, in following him. This, this is all part of the intense instruction to prepare them for the cross. Public ministry over, private instruction, preparing them for the cross when he will leave them and then they will follow his mission and, and continue that, just like we're, we're doing that, that, that today. And you remember, Jesus has just reminded them back in verse 30 about the mission. The Son of Man is going to be delivered or is already being delivered, by, predetermined by God. The Son's going to come. He's going to be delivered He's going to die, and the way he's going to die is going to be delivered into the hands of sinners. And sinners are going to put him to death, and then he's going to rise again the third day. He brings them back to the, back to the mission. And that leads to a very contradictory discussion amongst the disciples. Jesus is talking about humbling himself to death, and they're talking about who's going to be great in the, in the kingdom. So Jesus gives them the kingdom principle about greatness, uses a little child to give a lesson on humility, and their response is, is, is an argument concerning someone who's not part of their clique or their club doing a, a good work in, in Jesus' name. They, they still don't get it. And Jesus ends that whole section that we looked at last week about, uh, with a reminder. If you're last, if you follow Christ, you'll be last in the world. You'll not receive any reward from the world. But even the smallest service in Jesus name even something as small as giving a cup of water in his name will not go without reward from the father in in heaven his death calls for humility but it also calls for following him in a very definitive way I mean if you listen this passage is is extreme it's it's very drastic and it's meant to be that way it's to arrest our attention to draw us into the seriousness of, of what it means to be a, a disciple. And Jesus has already done this once back in Mark 8. You remember where G, uh, when Peter says, you're the Christ, you're the son of the living God. Jesus gives the, exactly what that means, what that looks like. And Peter rebukes him. And he says, oh, no, Lord, you know, just far be it from you. And, and Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. That's a pretty strong statement, pretty drastic statement. And then he gives the demands of discipleship. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Deny, die, if, if need be, and, and, and follow me. Those are hard words. There's no wiggle room in them. 
And Jesus now does the same thing. He brings them back to the mission, and he gives them the very drastic and difficult and clarifying words about, about what it means to follow him. It's very graphic imagery. He talks about being drowned, being hurled into the sea, being drowned with a, with a millstone around your neck rather than do what he commands. Plucking out your eye instead of going to hell. It's pretty, pretty serious stuff. And he tells them and he tells us that you cannot be my disciple apart from embracing these kind of demands. This is essential. They're extreme calls, but they make up true, genuine discipleship, which our Lord makes over and over as he preaches the, the gospel. These are not for Christians who want to be really serious about Jesus, and the rest of us can, can, can take discipleship right, uh, light routes. That, that's, that's not what Jesus is, is saying here. What is described is genuine discipleship, the demands of that. And quite frankly, it's, it's a little uncomfortable. It really is. No one likes to hear or talk about or think about the demand to strive against sin so hard that it costs you everything or the reality of eternal torment, for, for that matter. It's not a lighthearted topic, is it? We don't like specificity. We don't like exclusivity. We don't like exclusiveness, especially in our society that wants to blur the lines for everything, screams for inclusion, right? I mean, our culture has no problem talking about being spiritual and offering up thoughts and prayers, but it doesn't want to define what being spiritual means or who you're praying to or how to even be right with the one that you're praying to. That is our culture. And Jesus doesn't operate by the rules of culture, not then and, and not now. He, he's the one who defines the rules because he's God. He's compassionately clear. He's drastically direct about who God is and what it means to follow him because the stakes are no less than salvation. That's, that's, the, that's the crux of the matter, no pun intended. Jesus spoke more on hell than any other person in the Bible. In fact, I would say, I've heard theologians say it before, that if Jesus had not been the one that gave us the doctrine of hell, we would explain it away. We would just say, oh, that's, that's Paul, that's culture, that's ignorant people that were uneducated. But you can't deny it because Jesus was the one that gives us the doctrine of eternal torment. Jesus is the one who said there is only one God and there's only one way there. I mean, you can't get around that. I am the way. No man comes unto the Father but by me. Is that specific, exclusive? There is no wiggle room. You cannot. You either have to take Jesus at face value at what he says, or you have to deny him. And that's, the, that's really what, what he's forcing human beings to do. And he even had the audacity to say he was the way. Jesus freely calls to anyone, anywhere. doesn't matter your religious background. It doesn't matter your culture, your skin color. It doesn't matter what sin that you've been in, what desires you profess. He calls to anyone, anywhere to follow him. You can follow him. But he defines what that means. He defines how you do that. And ever since Mark chapter 1, he's been inviting, inviting people into the kingdom of heaven which happens by repenting of your sins, believing in him, and thereby becoming his disciples. The first words that 
are recorded about the first sermon that Jesus ever preaches in Mark chapter 1, after the baptism, after the temptation, he goes to Galilee, he starts his ministry. This is his message. He came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God, saying the time is fulfilled, now is the time, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. That's the message. And Mark goes on in the very next scene and says Jesus is walking by the seaside and he sees Simon, who's Peter, and Andrew, his brother. And what does he say to them? Follow me. What it looks like to repent and believe the gospel is, is following him, to follow him, right? Go to all the world, make disciples, baptize them, name the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. Follow me, is what Jesus is, is saying. And this profound salvation brings a call for dedicated discipleship. And Jesus gives some instructions about that, beginning in verse 42 through the rest of the, rest of the chapter. In verse 42, he talks about causing others to fall. There's a lesson in discipleship about causing other people to fall. Then he gives a lesson about ensnaring yourself in sin. If your, your hand, if your foot, if your eye... Do something about it. It's your hand. It's your foot. It's your eye. And then in the end, he talks about being salty, pursuing sanctification. So I would outline verses 42 through 50 this way. There, there's three drastic demands of, of discipleship. There's an obligation about stumbling. You have an obligation toward other people about keeping them from from stumbling. There's an opposition to sin. A disciple has an opposition to sin. And he describes how serious that opposition is. And then there's an objective in, in sanctification. In verse 49 and 50, there's an obligation, there's an opposition, there's an objective. It's about stumbling, it's about indwelling sin in you, and it's about sanctification. It's about holiness. It's about having salt in, your, in yourself. Let's look at this first drastic demand. There's an obligation about stumbling. Look, if you would, at verse, at verse 42. He says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me, or who believe, to stumble, it would be better for him if he was hurled into the sea, or if he'd been cast into the sea with a heavy millstone hung around his, hung around his neck. Notice the target. Is those who believe in me. Now, you don't think Jesus is serious about harming others? Especially Christians? You better think again. You better read this passage. He describes how seriously we are to take the welfare of other believers, other disciples. You have responsibilities as a disciple to other disciples. You're not your brother's keeper in the way that the socialists mean it, where they can take all of your money and redistribute it. But it would be better to die a horrible death than to cause another believer to falter in his walk with Christ. You are your brother's keeper in that way. The way that verse 41 and 42, Tim read that for us, the way 41 and 42 goes together, is as great as the reward for even the smallest act of obedience in Jesus' name, giving a cup of water. As great as the reward will be in heaven, equally great, equally horrible, is the act of causing another believer to stumble. 
you'll have reward in heaven for giving a cup of water. It would be better for you to drown in the bottom of the sea than to sin and cause another person to, to sin. Now, notice he's speaking to his disciples. And notice the target in verse 42. It's one of these little ones who believe. The little one is from the fresh illustration about the, about the child that Jesus has, has just placed before them. And he says instead of doing that, it would be better to drown in the sea wearing a giant millstone. It's literally a, a donkey stone. Two Greek words, donkey or mule and stone. And it was a, it was a millstone. And you've probably seen, seen those. There, there would be a flat stone on the bottom and the grain would be placed in it and there would be a stone that would be put on top of it and it would have a, a turn, a turnstile. And it would be really, really heavy. And so it would take a mule that would turn it, that would walk around and would turn that top stone and it would grind it. There would be a hole in it. It would, it would, it would weigh thousands of pounds. This is a, a significant stone, so heavy that it had to be pulled by a mule. And, and he says it would be better if that stone, that thousands of pounds of stone would be placed on your neck or tied to your neck and you would be hurled into the sea rather than cause one of these, these little ones to, to stumble, to scandalizomai, to, to scandalize them, scandalize their faith. And the idea is someone who disables another's walk or causes the downfall of someone following Jesus. Now, there are many ways that you could do that. You could actively tempt them to sin. I've seen people that profess to be Christians do that. You could, you could be a poor example to them and lead them into sin and not even, not even know it. The Bible tells us that we have liberty in Christ, but that liberty needs to be, needs to be instructed based upon how it's going to hurt other people. It may be okay for you. You may be free to do that, but it may be harmful to, to someone else. And, and this really puts some weight on that, doesn't it? It's how careful that you and I are supposed to be when we're dealing with, with another person's walk with, with Christ. Do you normally think, do you purposely think, maybe when you, when you say something about someone else, you tear someone down, it's, it's worthy of death? When you grumble or complain, it's your automatic thought, oh, well, I shouldn't do that. It's worthy of death. I should be hurled into the sea. I don't, <laughs> which is why I need this passage. Do you contemplate the worthiness of your execution when you minimize God's demands for holiness? I don't, which is why I need this passage and why the disciples did too. Jesus says it's that serious. That's how serious sin is. So we have to ask ourselves the question, why, if it's that serious... If sin is that serious to Christ, why is it not that serious to me and, and to you? Because the Bible rightly interprets reality, and I'm not rightly interpreting reality when I don't feel this weight. You expect the world to fight against genuine faith, but Jesus says you shouldn't expect it from another believer. I can vividly remember seeing an illustration of this. And, and and when I when the Lord brought it back to my mind in, in preparing, it, it just I mean it, it still causes me to shudder. It really does. I'm not just you know using a preaching illustration. I was in seminary at, at Liberty, 
And I went to Convo because you're required to do that. You're required to do that then. I think you still are. And I sat several rows up in convocation, and I sat behind a, a guy and a girl, and evidently they were, they were boyfriend and girlfriend. And, and they couldn't see me. The guy in particular couldn't see me, but they were more than the kind of boyfriend and girlfriend that they should have been. During convo, this, this young man could keep his hands off the, off the girl, and I don't mean, you know, puppy love stuff. I mean inappropriate things it was it was very obvious that their relationship was, was not honoring to christ he was sinning against her right there in the middle of in the middle of convocation and when convo started it just so happened that the preacher i don't remember who it was but he was preaching on the sin of immorality and as the sermon began i watched the girl begin to be zoned in on the preacher and she was focused on what he said. And I watched her countenance. I can't see her face, but I can see the side of it in her body language. And, and she began to listen intently. She was being drawn in to, to the message. And I also watched the guy. I watched him look at her. And he could tell that she was being affected by the sermon. And I, I watched as, as that continued. He intentionally tried to distract her. Away from, the, away from the message. He tried to tickle her. He, he tried to ask her a question. I mean, it was very obvious. And each time, she would zone right back in. And sadly, after 20 minutes or so of it, she, she finally stopped paying attention, and he went back to, to caressing her. And I don't normally do this, but I couldn't help myself. I was so grieved for this young lady and what, what had happened after Kondo was over, I walked several rows down, and I, I sat down behind him, and I whispered in his ear. I spoke in his ear. She's over here, and I was on this side of his ear. And I said, I saw what you did, but you should be more frightening that God saw it as well. And I'd be terrified if I were you. He looked at me with this sheepish look, and then I looked at the girl and said, you should, you should find a new man one that loves Jesus Christ, and I walked off. It would be better to drown quickly than to cause another person to sin, that's what Jesus says. But you should also fear the sin that's in your own heart. Look at what he says in verse 43. There's an opposition to sin, and, and there's really two parts to these several verses. There's a call for serious dealing with sin. That's the opposition. You're opposed to it. You deal with it seriously. And he does it because there's this solemn warning, the reality of, of eternal torment and, and, and hell. Verse 43. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. And it's better for you to enter life, that's eternal life, than having two hands to go into hell into unquenchable fire, or where the fire is not quenched. And then it quotes Isaiah 66, where the, where the worm doesn't die and the fire is, is not quenched. And he says the exact same thing in verse 45 about your foot, and, and the exact same thing about your eye in verse 47. And Jesus gives a drastic call for dealing seriously with indwelling sin. It's, it's not about causing someone else to stumble. It's about your hand and your eye and your foot in your eternal destiny. 
You see the change of, of topic. And the body parts that he mentions here replay, re, uh, are all of your life. It's like what you see in Romans 3 when it talks about total depravity. It talks about what comes out of your mouth. It talks about your eyes. It talks about your feet, your tongue. I mean, these are members. These are representations of the whole person. So it's a threefold repetition. It's like when God says, holy, 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 it means he's really holy. Threefold repetition. It's important. It's urgent. And the hands serve as instruments. The feet are means to run, to do evil or good. The eye is the window to the soul to look upon immoral things or covetous things or behold the beauty of God. And Jesus says, if your hand, your foot, your eye causes you to, to sin, to stumble, to fall into sin, cut it off, pluck it out. Now, that's hyperbole. It's like saying, I'm going to starve to death if this sermon doesn't hurry up and end. It's hyperbole. You're not literally going to starve to death. You probably need the sermon more than you need food if you're like me. It's an over-the-stop statement to emphasize the seriousness of something. It's, a, it's not a literal call to maim yourself. You can read church history and see some individuals that did that, and it didn't solve their problem at all. Because the problem is not the hand, it's not the foot, it's not the eye. The problem is the heart. It's, it's inside. Cutting off your hand, cutting off your foot, plucking out your eye doesn't solve the problem of sin. You can be a one-handed thief and a one-eyed adulterer. People with no eyes, no hands, no feet still have a sin problem for, for, that, for that matter. It's an internal issue. So this is a, an opposition to the indwelling sin that's in us, and you deal with it seriously. It's, it's important, Jesus says. And Jesus already told us back in Mark chapter 7 where the problem is. There's nothing outside of the man, Mark seven fifteen. There's nothing outside of the man that can defile him if it goes into him, but the things which proceed out of the man... That's what defiles the man. It's what proceeds out of the heart. That's what defiles him before God. The heart is the, is the problem. And then, of course, the heart is the seat of everything, of, of the will, and, and that is what directs the hands and the eyes and the feet. So, and because of that, the disciple has to rage, wage radical war. That's his point. You must oppose sin. You cannot be Jesus' disciple if you do not oppose sin and not coddle it. I, I think I've told you this before, and I know I'm 47, and so I don't have some of the aches and pains that you do. Those of you who are older, I'm sure my day's coming. But what really, 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 I mean, what makes me want to go to heaven, obviously, is to see Christ. I want to be with, I want to be with Jesus. But, but what I, I can't wait to get rid of is, is the indwelling sin, the sin that's in my heart, the sin that tempts me, the sin that draws me away from giving the proper glory and thanks to the God who saved me. I hate it, and I can't wait to get rid of it. And one day, one day, I will be completely redeemed. I'll have a new body, a glorified body, like you, and you will not have any indwelling sin. Won't that be a day? Oh, I can't wait for that day. 
But while you do, you have to oppose it. You can't coddle it. You have to kill it. You can't play with it. Listen to the words of Jesus. I can give you plenty of examples when I did not obey this passage. It will not go well for you. He's saying remove whatever is causing you to stumble because no sin is worth going to hell for. I I can remember discipling a couple many years ago who were engaged to be married. And during our time together, they, they confessed being immoral. They both said they wanted to repent, and I told them, you should. They both professed to be a Christian. And so I told them, postpone the wedding, and don't see each other until you can gain victory, until God can work repentance in your hearts in this. I can remember the look on their face on the couch. They politely agreed, canceled their next appointment, left our church, and found somebody else to marry them. Within less than a year, they were divorced. It's better to repent no matter how painful the repentance may be because hell is real. That's what Jesus says. It's real. That's what's at stake. Don't think that you're a Christian and because Jesus shed his blood for you, that that sin's okay and that you can continue in sin and that it's not a problem. Because that's one of the greatest evidences of self-deception that there is. A Christian cannot continue in sin that grace may abound. God forbid. That's what the Bible says. And he gives a solemn warning for this serious dealing. He says it would be better for you to enter life one-eyed, one-handed, one-foot, than have both of those and and go into hell, go into Gehenna. It's the valley of, of Hinnom. It's the... It's a field on the southwest slope of, of the city of Jerusalem. It was the abortion clinic of the Old Testament. It's, it's where they sacrificed children to the Canaanite god Moloch and Baal. It was later used for a trash dump. And so it, it, it went under, uh, uh, they threw dead bodies there. It, went, it, went, it underwent continual burning. So it's used for symbol of the eternal fire. And the word's used 12 times in the New Testament, 11 times. 11 of the 12, when the word Gehenna is used, hell is used, this place of eternal torment, 11 of those 12 comes from the mouth of Jesus himself. And you say, well, these are, these are symbols. So the Bible describes hell as a, as a place of outer darkness, a lake of fire, a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, a place of eternal separation from the blessing of God, a prison, a place of torment, a place where the worm doesn't turn or die. You say, oh, that's symbol, symbolism. You should find no comfort in that. Because symbols describe a reality that is far worse. We use symbols because it's so bad, it's so out there, we don't have any other way to describe what, what it's like. It's not to take it down, it's to, it's to increase it. Jesus says hell's eternal, it's just, it's horrible because God is incredible and yet it is escapable. This whole idea of the, the worm doesn't die and the fire is not, is not quenched is from Isaiah 66, 24. It's the very end of the book. God describes the final judgment of the wicked. 
Then they will go forth and look on the corpses of men who have transgressed against me, for their worm will not die and their fire will not be quenched, and they will be an abhorrence to, to all mankind. There's no end to hell. It's a place of eternal torment in the flame. And just like believers, just like you as a believer, you're going to have a body. God gave you a body perfectly fit for the earth. He's going to make you a body in the resurrection perfectly fit for heaven, to enjoy heaven. This body, flesh and blood, can't enter into the kingdom of heaven. Flesh and blood can't go to eternal torment because it would be consumed. So in the resurrection, those that are going into judgment will receive a body that will be fit for for the environment that they're going into, which is which is the fire. Hell is just. To understand why hell is just, you have to understand the grave offense of rejecting God. I mean, really, hell, eternal torment, eternal fire, for lying, for whatever, that's typically what you'll hear. And you have to understand that that our sin against an infinitely holy God, it's sin against God who's infinite. And because of that, it warrants an infinitely eternal punishment. I can remember hearing R.C. Sproul, uh, Sproul answer a question on a, on a Q&A panel about... Uh, someone asked, why was... If God's so long-suffering, why, why when the first man sinned, was God's punishment so severe, so long-lasting? Your kids have probably said some version of that to you. You know, well, if Adam did it, why do I get blamed? And then you take them to that passage in Romans. Well, did you do what Adam did? Yeah. So you're guilty too, right? Yeah. Why, if God's so long-suffering, why was God's punishment so severe to man? And R.C. gets this indignant look on his face, and he says, Time out. So severe? This creation from the dirt defied the holy God? (laughs) After God had said, The day that you eat of it, you'll surely die? And instead of dying that very day, he lived another day when he was even clothed in his nakedness? By pure grace? And while the consequences of that sin, of the curse, continued, was applied for for some time, God still gave common grace. The sun rises on the just as well as the unjust. And that curse was then one day absorbed by his own son who bore that curse on the tree so that that could be forgiven. And the punishment was too severe. What's wrong with you people? That's what he said. Our problem is we don't know who God is. And we don't know who we are. And hell is horrible because God is so gloriously incredible. John Piper said the reason hell is so terrible is because God is so great that despising him is so evil that it deserves this terrible punishment. If God were small, hell would be lukewarm. But because he is great, scorning God is a horrible thing and so is the punishment. You ever think of it that way? Exchanging God for something else is a cosmic insult, an infinite outrage. 
He said we look at his glory, we look at his power, we look at his wisdom, we look at his grace, and we don't say thank you, we don't say you're great, we say I'm going to trade you for something that I really want. It's saying to the infinite creator, the most beautiful reality in the universe, I don't want you, I don't prefer you, you're not attractive to me, you're not satisfying to me, I get no pleasure from you, this is my desire, this is my treasure, and it's something other than you. That's why hell exists, because it's an infinite sin against an incredible God. You couldn't do anything worse. All the sins that we commit have their root in, in that. But look at the last thing on the list. That's the best part of the list, isn't it? Hell's escapable. The Bible doesn't minimize the reality of hell, but it also doesn't muffle the mercy of Christ. (laughs) Jesus himself endured the wrath of God on our behalf so that all who trust in him could be delivered from God's wrath and be in eternal fellowship with him forever and can escape that that place that Jesus is talking about here. And if you're a disciple and you understand that and sin is what leads you there and sin is an evidence of not caring about God and you're saying you're following him, you ought to have an opposition to sin. Sin, there's, there's a problem there is what Jesus is saying. It's that serious. And the evidence that, that you are his disciple and that you get all of that is is the last one. There's an objective in in sanctification. View would at verse 49. There, there are three statements here. First two are statements, and then the, the last one is, is a command. Everyone will be salted with, with fire, seasoned, some of your translations might say. Then he says in verse 50, salt is good. But if it loses its savor or its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? And then here's the command at the very end of verse 50. There's two of them. Have salt in yourselves. Be at peace with one another. Notice the first two are statements, and the last two are commands. The first two are just stating a proverbial fact. It sets up the command. I want you to notice that this begins a new idea. Verse 49, I'm sorry, verse 48, he talks about everyone is burned with fire, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And now he says everyone is salted with fire. Burnt with fire, salted with with fire. So it's a new idea. Now, this verse is hard to interpret. This is a, a... a squirrely passage. Some of your translations may have some things in parentheses. And, and when I'm reading from the New American Standard, the New King James presents this, this differently. It's a hard verse to interpret. But there's really only two opinions that, that, that make sense, and, and they both draw the same conclusion about what verse 49 means. Everyone will be salted with, with fire. In the Old Testament, sacrificial offerings were seasoned with salt. The fire was there in the altar. There was a sacrifice placed on it, and then there was salt added to it. Ezekiel and Leviticus both command salt being added to sacrifices, and that symbolizes God's covenant. So fire and salt were were symbols of, of purity. That's one possible interpretation. 
this is a reference to the Old Testament sacrificial system. You are a sacrifice, and you ought to be pure. The second is, is, is the idea is it's a metaphor about how purifying trials come into disciples' lives, and the trials purify you. Everyone will be salted with fire. Notice it says will be. Everyone will be salted. Will be, that's what's coming. And those trials will be like fire, and they'll have the effect of salt. They purify. And either way, whether it's talking about Old Testament sacrifices or this is talking about the sufferings that are going to come into disciples' life, the, the, the reality, the goal is the same. It's, it's the objective of sanctification. To be pure and to be holy. To be sanctified. Be holy for I am holy. And we grow in holiness through trials and we're to pursue that purity in life. It's not fun. James says count it all joy when you enter into trials. But you count it all joy because they're useful. And one of the the uses of, of trials, of suffering, the fire of trials, is it salts you. It purifies you. And verse 50 says that's, that's good. Salt is, is good if it's salty. Salt is only useful in this second statement if it keeps its qualities. And if not, it, it's of no value. Now, we don't have time to go into all of it. You've heard it before, I'm sure. The salt comes from the salt sea, the Dead Sea, which was readily available, but it all was full of impurities. And one of the impurities was gypsum, which has sulfur and calcium in it. It's what we make drywall out of. And the problem was it looked like pure salt. You would get it. It would be dehydrated. It would be evaporated by the, by the sun. And you'd gather the salt and you'd take it home and it would look like pure salt, but then you would... It tasted nasty. You can imagine eating drywall on your eggs in the morning. It tasted nasty, and it didn't preserve things. So when you put it on on meat to preserve it, 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 it didn't have enough sodium in it. So it didn't preserve it. So the meat rotted. And it was worse than useless because you couldn't just throw it out. Because it had enough sodium in it to kill whatever was in the soil. So you've got this salt. You can't eat it. You can't use it to purify anything. And you can't just throw it out in the yard. Because if you throw it out in the yard, then nothing's going to grow. So you have to throw it on the dunghill or you throw it in the footpath, Jesus says, to keep the weeds from, from growing. It's the Jesus version of Roundup. Weed killer. You had a disposability problem of it. Because it did keep stuff from, from growing. Now put that in the context of, of Jesus' call about the demanding requirements of, of discipleship. Salt is good. He, he's saying a disciple that is doing the things that he just stated is good. If he has these qualities, he's a true disciple, he's useful. But those who don't have these characteristics are, are worse than useless. If the salt becomes unsalty, how will you make it salty or useful again? It has these impurities in it. And Christ followers that are contaminated by impurities will lose their effect and become of no use. And the fire of trials are there to help keep the impurities out. You're salted with fire. But you must have these 
qualities. And then Jesus ends with these two commands to his disciples at the end of verse 50. Have salt in yourselves. Be at peace with one another. Now notice he's moved from the individual to the the plural. Have salt in yourselves. Be at peace with one another. He's talking not just to the individuals. He's talking in general. All disciples. Have salt in yourselves. Live an undiluted life. Take serious the walk of others. Don't cause them to stumble. Fight against your own indwelling sin. Do what you must to kill it. Have salt in yourselves. Be holy, for I am holy, is what he's saying. And then he gives a direct application. Be at peace with one another. Did you read that and think, what's that got to do with hell and salted with fire and all of those kind of things? Be at peace with one another. It kind of seems out of place when he's talking about fire and and purity. Do you remember how Jesus started this lesson all the way back in chapter 8 when he comes down off of the, the Mount of Transfiguration? He gives the model of discipleship. He's going to lay down his life. You remember what the disciples are doing? When the three are coming off the mountain, there are ten that are down there being self-sufficient, proud. They couldn't cast out the demon, so he has to give them a lesson on faith. And then they're arguing on the way to Capernaum of who's great. They're arguing amongst themselves. They're jealous over a man who wasn't in their clan doing Jesus' work. They're proud. They're, they're self-serving. They're competitive. They're guilty of leading each other into sin. They were sinning themselves. And they were not pure before the Lord. And so Jesus says, stop. Have salt in yourselves. Be at peace with one another. It's a direct application. Now what about you? What do you need to deal with today? This is not just a sermon. You're here to hear the words of the living God so he can speak to you. And now he has spoken. And he has identified your, your eye, your, your foot, your hand, your heart, whatever it is, the impurities, the lack of seriousness. And he's calling you to the demands of discipleship. Maybe you're guilty of leading someone else into sin. Maybe you've, you've laid, let your guard down. Are you fighting against sin? I mean, are you really putting forth the effort that God calls for it, or are you playing with it? Do you have peace with others? Is there some indwelling sin? Is there some stumbling that you're doing that that is keeping peace from from being amongst the brethren, be at peace amongst yourself. If you're here this morning, you can't have peace with others until you have peace with God. Have you ever been saved? Do you realize that the moment that you take your last breath, you're going to cross the precipice of, of time and step into eternity? And you're going to be in one of two places. You're going to either be with your gracious master, the Lord Jesus, or you're going to be in eternal hell. 
And Jesus says, come to me, even in the midst of your sin, though they're red, like scarlet, though they're crimson, and I'll wash you white as snow. I'll turn you into wool because I shed my blood on the cross. But you'll come my way. You'll humble yourself before me. You'll repent. You'll believe the gospel. And you'll follow me free by grace. It's available by faith. But you'll come that path, that road, or you'll not go at all. Why would you want to go any other way? Christian, can you testify this morning that following Jesus might be difficult, but it is glorious? Amen? Come to Christ. Say, save me, I believe in you. Because until you do that, you'll never have peace. The place that Jesus describes is all you have to look forward to. If you've done that, whatever stumbling you've caused, whatever sin is in your life, whatever impurities that are there, the farthest you can fall is the rock of Christ. You're justified in Him. All of your sins have washed away. You need to come back to the Father and receive the fellowship that's there. He won't turn you away. He's not going to beat you over the head. He's going to run to you like the father and the prodigal son. Before, when you make the first move, he's going to, he's going to run 90% of the way. He's going to reach you where you're at. He's going to pick you up. He's going to cleanse you, and he's going to put you back on the path. And as many times as you repent, that's as many times as he'll do that because he's a gracious, gracious God. Won't you bow your heads? Father, your word has exposed us. And Lord, where I have not fought against indwelling sin in the way that you command in this passage, I humbly ask your forgiveness. Father, where there are anything where there's anything in my life that would lead to even the, the, the remotest form of impurity. I pray that you would cut it off before it turns to me to uselessness. Father, if I have sinned against anyone else, if I have led them into sin, if I have caused them to stumble, have mercy on me. Look to Christ who is my advocate. And I pray the same thing for anyone here this morning. Father, I pray for that one person that has never bowed the knee to Jesus. May today be the day. In Christ's name, amen.